Would you please turn to Mark, Mark 12, and we'll be going through verses 41 to 44. We're going through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse, and uh, we are um, now have come to the end of chapter 12 of the Gospel of Mark. Yee Praise the Lord. We're getting there. All right, we're getting there. We'll get, we're, we're going slowly, but we're going to get there on time, Lord willing. Whether in this side of eternity or the next side of eternity, but we'll get there, Lord willing. Okay, so Mark 12, starting from verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury <clears throat> and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury and many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount as cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow, <coughs> excuse me, put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. <clears throat> if you recall last week, uh, in the previous passage, Jesus commanded us, to beware of the scribes. Why? Because they don't have your best interest in their hearts. They're fake. They're dodgy people. They use godliness for their own gain. They're walking around with uh, long ropes, and they love people to exalt them. They love to have the best seats in the worship places and the places of honor. And even worse, even worse than that, they take advantage of those who are most vulnerable. Rather than elevating the lowly like Christ has done in his humility, they don't minister to the poor like the heart of God. No. What do they do? They do the exact opposite. They, they put down the poor and they elevate themselves. And they look spiritual, right? They look spiritual. But they're only pretending. They're in it for themselves. They exploit the poor. They don't care, in fact, who they take advantage of so long as they get what they want to get. And it was so sickening for Jesus that he exploded. And he concluded by saying, these will receive greater condemnation. Those people who take advantage of the simple in the name of Christianity they will pay a premium price for their hypocrisy. Those who 
are seeking their own glory while pretending to be humble, while acting as if they are so sincere and allowed to be praised by men and they put down and destroy the weak, they are the ones who will receive greater condemnation. So beware, beware, beware of those who show off with long prayers or spiritual head knowledge only so that they would impress you. Beware of them. And the words that Jesus used were so graphical in that, in that verse 40 where he said they devour, they consume, they take advantage of the most vulnerable people, the older, poor widows who had no one to provide for them. They take their properties and they throw them out in the street as homeless beggars. We looked at that last week. And it is in the context of this that Mark now records this account of this widow who gave her offering. This widow who has been taken advantage of by those scribes for their own benefit. And if we can trust this widow with the scribes, we find that the scribes are example of false worship. What not to do when you worship God. Uh, this widow, we will see shortly, that she is an example of a true worship. Those scribes, they devour widows. Yet this widow, she gave all she had. Just very simply, the outline, observation, explanation, implication. Observation. We start with observation. We'll read verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury. Now, what is that treasury? Well, let's look at it into context, right? Jesus here sat down with his disciples and the treasury is in the court of women, the court of the women. Now, you've got the outer court, that's the court of the Gentile that surrounds the entire temple, and as soon as you enter in the first court that you meet, is called the court of the women inside the temple. It was an area where all people would gather. Everyone is welcome except for the Gentiles. And in the court of the women, you would be able to see these gigantic columns of, in the, of the temple that is just surrounding the temple. And if you recall, the, the, the height of these massive columns will be just about less than 20 meters high. And the eastern side of this temple was covered with gold. So you can just imagine as you enter in and the morning sun rises and the rays of the sun hit the temple, the temple on that mount would shine like heaven. Some historians record that 
it was so bright, so bright as though it was the sun itself. And then you have all around were amazing works of arts and decorations all donated by wealthy Jewish people. And in this very court, in that court of the women, there was that temple treasury. Temple treasury is where people would give offering. And the treasury was, was made up of 13 uh, vessels all around the court of the women, and they were shaped in a, in a shape of trumpets. Why? You'll know in a, a little bit later why. But what you have now is the high priests, they are governing everybody in the court of the women, and those who are putting money into those uh, vessels, and they are making sure that everyone that comes in to give a gift uh, would be cleansed, and they would make sure that they're all in line, and they make their way in a line to the offering vessel to deposit their offerings. Surrounded by extravagance, wealth, gold, Jesus sat. And he sat, and he began observing, the text says. He was watching. Well, as he was watching, you can imagine it's a Passover, right? Time, so there's a couple of days before the Passover feast. Thousands upon thousands, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people would have been in that temple from all around Jerusalem. They were coming in. So as he's watching, there were People everywhere, hustling and bustling around. There were animals that were dragged to the slaughter, and there was so much noises going on. But Jesus now is eyeing something in particular. He's looking at something. What is he looking at? We continue reading, and it says, and he be- and began observing how the people. We're putting money into the treasury. So Jesus was watching how people were tossing their money into those trumpet-shaped donation boxes, if you like. And the text continues and it says, And many rich people were putting in large sums. So these rich people, by the way, in the narrative of the Gospel of Mark, they're pointing to the scribes. They represent the scribes, and it says they were putting in large sums. This putting is imperfect tense. What does that mean? It just simply means that they kept on putting and putting just loads and loads of money, just kept on just pouring into those vessels. So you can just imagine this rich man walked by, and of course uh, you can spot the rich man miles away, right? Their bright, colorful clothes, their chests wide open, and, and their bellies. I mean, it was a sign of wealth, right? So their bellies are extended forward and walking maybe like penguins. And they're moving in the line, making their way to the vessel. 
It's a parade show. And they kept him pouring in. The text says, what? Large sums of money. And so as their heavy coins are clashing at, at the bottom of that treasury, it sets off the trumpets blowing. You see, that's why they're in the form of trumpets. And so the heavier the money bag that falls, the louder the sound the trumpet will blow. And all the people in the temple would know what a wonderful man this man is that is passing by. What a generous man he is. Surely he's a godly man. Surely he's a man of honor. No doubt God is pleased with these wealthy people, right? And just before Jesus gives his own assessment, all of a sudden, the narrative now takes a sharp turn and it changes the focus and we continue on reading in verse 42 and it says, a poor widow came. So there's a change of scene. There is now someone entered the courtroom of the gentile of the women and that person has entered in unnoticed. No one noticed that woman. Why? Because everyone is eyeing the rich men with their long ropes. No one noticed this widow except for Jesus. And so the text says that she was a widow. So what sort of woman? She was a widow. Now, widows at the time of Jesus, um, if they didn't have any sons to protect them, they're left destitute. There was no Centrelink, of course, at that time. There was no government support, as we all know. So widows at that time were often were without financial help. And so they were oppressed. They were helpless. Now, that woman wasn't just a widow. She was poor. And Mark says here, Mark says, poor widow. So, and no doubt, she was made poor because she was a victim of the scribe's greed and brutality who devoured her home. And then the text continues and it says, and put in, Two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Now, we need to understand what it means. Two small copper coins. Copper coins here in Greek, by the way, is leptons. In the dictionary, they said literally it means thin ones. Thin. So, you, so they're small, but not only small, but they're thin and, and um, in fact, the word lepton is where we get the word leaf from. So how much were these two leaves worth? If you uh, read the Gospels, you will discover that denarius is one day's wage. And when I did my research, I found that the two copper coins would be worth, get this, you ready? 
one over 64 of a denarius. One over 64. So if you do the maths, you'd find that it's about eight minutes worth of labor. Basically, if you translate it to Australian dollars, it would come down to just about $2, depending where you work. $2. That's all that you had. You can't even buy cheeseburger with this money. I looked it up, Hungry Jack's uh, catalog. You can't even buy cheeseburger from Hungry Jack's for, for $2. So this poor widow had nothing left. Nothing but two copper coins. And what does it say in verse 44? She put in all she owned, all she had to live on. This poor widow, still observing, surrounded by the wealthy people, she grabbed her two thin leaves out of her purse. She dropped them into a trumpet. You have to blow hard to force these two leaves to go down, right? Because gravity <laughs> is not enough to force it to come down. Hardly making any sound. Now, scribes, they couldn't care less about this woman. But Jesus sees. And Jesus cares. And Jesus is watching, right? And he's not only observing the rich, but his eyes are upon this poor woman. And not only is Jesus observing what they're putting in, he's also observing what they're keeping to themselves. Hebrews 4.13, it says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare, to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. What an encouragement it is for the widow. And what a challenge it would be for those scribes, right? Well, that's the observation. I want to move quickly to the expl explanation because I want to go and rush even quicker and move into the implications where I think where the meat is, where we're going to be fed. So explanation. Verse 43. Jesus here says, He are calling his disciples to him. He said to them, and the first words that came out of Jesus' mouth, Truly I say to you. This is the eighth time in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus would say, Truly I say to you. Meaning, Guys, this is an important lesson to learn. Gather up, team. Mark, Matthew, Luke, John, semicircle all around. All right, Jesus, tell us what is the lesson? What is the lesson to be learned? And Jesus continues on and he says, This poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. Now, pause there. Here's a challenge. You're going to have to turn on your brain power a little bit. 
Some commentators and even ones that we highly respect, that I personally highly, highly respect, they say all that Jesus was teaching is that this widow was just a victim. Because one of the marks of the false teachers is what? We read it earlier. Devour widows' houses and they prey on the, on the most vulnerable and the weak. And so those commentators say there is no indication of true faith in this woman. There is no love. There is nothing godliness in this woman that we can point to. She, she, she's just there as a victim in order to expose the ungodliness of the scribe, but there is nothing in, in and of that woman herself that we would admire. Well, I would agree that it is true that this woman is definitely a victim of the false teacher's abuse. Absolutely no doubt about it. But to leave it there is to miss the heart of the lesson that Jesus is communicating. Jesus is not saying, truly, I say to you, and then all that he's going to go on about is just to expose the corruption that he has already exposed about the false teachers. Why do I say that? Well, um, after all, while Mark concludes this entire narrative here with the story of the widow in the exact parallel account in the Gospel of Matthew, how does Jesus conclude it? How does Matthew render the conclusion of that passage? He says this in verse 13 of Matthew 23. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. But does he stop there? No, he does not. He goes on and he says, Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Well, if the first part of this verse is directly related to the scribes, we know that they are the ones who exalt themselves, therefore they are the ones who are going to be humbled. Therefore, to whom then is the second part of this verse? Who is it that humbles himself that shall be exalted? You see, this poor widow was not just a victim, she was a hero. And Jesus in intended to exalt her. This widow, excuse me, is a great example to learn the true heart of worship from. She is a hero of faith. She is a woman, a godly woman, that gives willingly, and she has so much love for the Lord. There is so much we can learn from this woman. And so I come to the implication, number three. And that's where we're going to park for a while. And we want to enjoy and delight in, in the heart of this woman so that we would imitate her. Because most certainly, she's a great exa example, a reflection of Jesus Christ himself. And we'll see that in a minute. So I'm going to break down the implication into three sub-points. First, I want to look at the fact that she is a hero of faith. She did indeed trust God. Now, the critics, they say there's no indi indication of personal faith. 
That's what they say. But if you read again what Jesus said, Jesus said that this poor widow put in more than all the rest. Put in more. In whose assessment did she put in more? In a false teacher's assessment? In a common man's assessment? No way. Even the disciples themselves overlooked her contribution. We'll see that in the next chapter, in chapter 13. In whose assessment did she put more? It was in Jesus' assessment. It is through the eyes of God that she poured gallons of donations. Now we know that God only recognizes acts of faith, right? I mean, it says in Romans 14, 23, whatever is not from faith is sin. Whatever is not from faith is sin. And if, so think about it. If, if her donation was done to earn God's favor, if it was because she trusted in her effort to work her way to heaven, if she was not convinced that she was in need of a savior, one would have expected that Jesus would put this statement in the negative, right? Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Jesus would have said, all the contributors put in the, into the treasury no more, in the negative, no more than this poor widow put in. Meaning, Jesus would have said, disciples, gather around. See these rich people? See this poor woman? Woman? All the donations, whether the widow or the rich, they equal to zero value. All their donations are like filthy rag in my sight. It's nothing to me. Away with your money. It is an offensive to my redemption. You're trampling upon my blood by your offerings. That's what Jesus would have said. But no. Jesus didn't state it in the negative. Jesus said she put in more. That's positive. So whatever she put in has value in the eyes of Christ. She put in more, meaning she's exalted more. She is praised more. Her faith is real. Her faith is great. That's what it's saying. How great is her faith? Oh, Jesus continues on and he tells us in verse 44 how great her faith was. Jesus said, For they all put in out of this surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned, all she had to live on. She gave it all. She did what the rich young ruler could never do. She sold up. She sold out, then she threw herself into the arms of a faithful God. And it's kind of like she's saying to God, God, you look after me. I trust in you. Now, please note, we're not saying here that every Christian has to put on 
put all his possessions into the donation box to say that he trusts in God. We know that. We know that there were godly men in the past, though there were few. Not many of you that are called, uh, that were rich, all right? There were few, but there were men of God, had faith in God, and were rich. However, brothers, sisters, we cannot take this away from this widow. She expressed her faith, her trust in God, by giving all that she had. You see, to trust in God means that every Christian ought to live as though he owns nothing. And he signed his ownership of his life away to Jesus Christ. Faith says, I will not boast in my riches. At God's call, I am ready to fling all my possessions away. Because I rest not in my riches, but in God, who is my provider. This is what living faith says. Those rich people, they put in large sums of money, but in reality, they depended, they depended on their surplus. But she, she put in all she owned because her trust her dependence was in God. Her giving of, as Jesus said, all she had to live on cries out, Who do I have to protect me from danger but you, O God? Who do I have as my refuge in my wilderness? Who do I have as the lifeguard in this ocean that is full of sharks? But you, O oh God, my faithful God. She was putting this money into this vessel. It is as though her heart was crying out in trust. Why should I fear false teachers who want to devour me alive? Why should I fear them when you are my fountain of hope? I believe, God, that you are gentle with me. Your gentle hands are upholding me, and your mighty wings are covering me. I believe you will not put me to shame. Why? Because I put my trust in you. And with this kind of attitude, she comes to God with all that she had, and she would say to God, God, here are all my possessions. I place them into your hands. That's trust. That's trust. Amen. She trusted in God fully. Now, second thing is, we can easily observe that she gave willingly. Willingly. This woman, she, she could have come up with Hundreds of excuses not to give any of her coins, right? I mean, she could have said that, you know, well, I'm poor. I guess I'm exempted. Well, what, what, what couple of copper coins would do among the wealthy, the gold and the silver? She could have said, I, I need to get food. I need to get a half cheeseburger. I'm sure God will understand. 
Or she could have gone and said, look, you know, one copper coin for me, one copper coin for God. Now, all this would have been quite reasonable. No one would have been able to blame her for not giving anything to, to, in, in, a treasure, um, in a treasury. But when she gave, what did she give? All she owned. No way anybody reads this and comes out concluding that she gave grudgingly. No way. No way you would come out of this and say she was reluctant in giving her money. No one was watching. She had no one to impress. She's not going to the treasury dragging her feet. And, and with the, her tight fist and putting the very bare minimum. No. She's not holding back anything. Her heart says everything must go. And when no one was noticing, she knows that God is watching. She knows that the divine camera is rolling. And she's saying to God, this is for you. I am willing. Brothers, I want to show you that this is consistent with what the Scripture teaches when we give not only of our finance, but time and effort. Would you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9? We'll just have a look at that verse, verse 7. 9 verse 7. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7. It says this, Each one must do, that's in the context of giving, giving, just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. Basically what this means is that Paul is saying when, when you give, don't say, oh, I really don't want to give my help or offer of service to God. I would rather keep it to myself. But, oh well, I, I guess I have to just muscle up, just get this willpower and do what I hate to do. He says, don't do that. Yeah, this brother, he, he, he needs my help. I know I can help him. I really don't want to help him, but what choice do I have? And Paul is saying, don't, don't do that. That's wrong. That's wrong. Why is it wrong? What does the rest of the verse say? For God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. God is so pleased when our hearts are willing and rejoicing while we give. We are the ones who were loved by God, chosen by God, bought by God, forgiven, justified, and sanctified by God. And the text in 2 Corinthians 4, it says, 5 says, um, we no longer live for ourselves, but for Christ. That our ambition is to be pleasing to Him. Our hearts are set to please Him who has been so gracious, so kind to us. And so when, when we give, 
We are meant to bring a smile to the face of God. How? By being cheerful givers, willing to give, willing to spend and be spent. God loves cheerful givers. There is that special kind of love that God has for those children of His that give cheerfully. Why is it that God loves cheerful givers? Well, think about it, brothers and sisters. God delights in whom? In His Son, Jesus, whom He said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we know that Jesus is a cheerful giver, right? He is a cheerful giver. And so when we give cheerfully, we are reflecting back this beautiful image of Jesus that God is graciously imprinting in our hearts. Brothers, it's our heart desire to be the object of this special affection of God when we give cheerfully. We want that. We want God to look at us and we see Him pleased by seeing His Son being formed in our hearts. How? By being grudgingly helping? By being reluctant? No. How? By being like this widow that in her deep poverty she was willing to give all she had. And when we give liberally, cheerfully, you give your time, effort, money to God and to His people, guess what? We are becoming more like the Savior, our Savior, who gave us not His wallet, but His own life. And how did He give us His life? Hebrews 12, 2 tells us, who for the joy that was said before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. God loves cheerful givers. Let God delight in beholding his Son formed in your brothers and sisters. Let God delight in seeing you cheerful, joyful as you help others. When somebody comes and asks you for help and you know that he's in need, say, with all of my heart, I want to help you. It is my pleasure to make sacrifices, whatever necessary, in order to give you support, give you aid. And we'll come back to this widow. Not only did she trust God and that she was willing, but she loved God sacrificially. There's no doubt that she loved God sacrificially. This widow didn't just trust in God as one trusts, you know, in a glorified, save God, security God, sorry. You know, someone that I'm willing to pay all I have in order to protect me from danger so that I can pursue what my flesh really loves? No. God is the very object of her satisfaction. 
Back again, look at verse 43. Jesus says, this poor widow put in more. Now stay with me. Let me prove to you that she did this out of love. When Jesus said this poor widow put in more, there was value in what she put in in the sight of God. And Jesus recognized that, right? And even shared this recognition with his disciples. Gather up, she put in more. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3, says this, If I give all my possessions to feed the poor and do not have love, it profits me nothing. And Jesus said, she put in more. What profit can there be better than to be recognized by Jesus? When he says that this widow gave more than all the wealthy who gave so much of their possessions. And brothers, sisters, if you put yourself in her shoes and now you're singled out by the Son of God and he gathers the 12 apostles and now that they have this apostleship meeting where Jesus says about you that you gave the most because you sacrificed the most. How can there be better praise, sweeter honor than that? And if that was her profit, then how can we say that she didn't give all she earned out of love? Let me give you another reason why I believe that she gave out of love. If you recall the last test, the last question, it was made by a scribe, right? He's one of those scribes, and he asked Jesus a question. What was the question about? What is the greatest command? And the greatest command is to love the Lord God with all your heart. A command that all the scribes knew only superficially. But they never had faith to live it out, right? Question. How do I love God with all my heart? How do I live this love out? Widow answers. By giving all I have for God. By giving Him all I have. Why? Is this a good answer? Because Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This widow stands in perfect contrast to those scribes. The scribes hated God and they wanted to kill the Son of God because all that they loved was themselves. So what did they do? They wore colorful clothes to be noticed. And they gave offerings, and they sounded the trumpet to be honored by men. But their bank account was still healthy. But this widow, this poor widow, what else could she do to reflect her deep love for God? She goes to the house of God unnoticed. She holds her purse upside down. She gives all she has and there is nothing left except the clothes on her back. 
And if this does not speak of her deep love for God, I don't know what else would. You see, the the scribes are a bad example of the love for God, but this widow is a shining example of that love. Brothers, just like Jesus said, truly I say to you, let me tell you the very crux of that lesson. True love for God, brothers and sisters, is not measured by the size of the gift that you give Him. It is by the sacrifice that is made behind that gift. As many commentators have mentioned, it is not the portion, it is the proportion of what you give Him. Do you want to know how much you really love God? Do you want to know? Do you want to have a very clear and concise test to examine how much you truly love God? Don't look at how, at how much time, money, or effort you give to God. You know what you look at? You look at how much money, time, and effort left for yourself after you've given what you've gave to God. It's the leftover. It's the leftover that will give you a good measure of your true love for God. This poor widow, she gave it all. She gave it all. And that speaks of great love for God that even defies logic. How can she not challenge each one of us, brothers and sisters? Well, this widow, she trusted God fully. She was willing to give voluntarily, and she loved him sacrificially. Well, we'll come to the end now, and I want to conclude by just asking a couple of questions. If you will go to this widow, you ask, why is it that your love for God would drive you to make this sacrifice? Why? I mean, you could have just sang a song, prayer to prayer, goosebump here and there, sat on the couch and said, I love God. I love God so much and did nothing. Why would you have to do something, sacrifice, if you trust that it's all by grace alone? You know what she would say to you? I'll say to you what you might say, maybe not in these words, and I'll back it up by Scripture afterwards. I'm giving sacrificially because this will reveal more of that God that I love to the eyes of my heart. It will reveal more of that God that I love in the eyes of my heart. That's why I sacrifice. 2 Corinthians 4.11 Paul says, For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. Why? Why should you go through such sacrifice, Paul? So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Paul again says, 
whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Continues on, more than that I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things and count him as rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. He counts all things rubbish. He has to count all things rubbish. Why, Paul, would you count your identity your work, your reputation, and your family, everything as absolutely nothing. Why would you do that, Paul? So that I may gain Christ. And he explained what it means to gain Christ. It is the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. I lay all I have on the altar. Everything I lay on the altar because this will lead me to greater clarity of how glorious Christ is, who I love with all of my heart. To make those sacrifices, it will lead to a sweeter satisfaction of His beauty, knowing in that while I give sacrificially for Jesus' sake, I am pursuing my superior pleasure, as John Piper puts it, of savoring Christ. I can get to hold, behold more of Christ in my heart. As to me, more surpassing, valuable, more supremely pleasant to me than the false pleasures of hoarding my time, my effort, my possessions. To myself. Second question. So when I give all my effort, all my possessions to God, is it a burdensome? I mean, surely when she gave all that she had and she went home, she was sad, she was depressed, right? When I'm when I am motivated by the love for God, yes, of course, my flesh will kick back and scream. But that sacrificial giving no longer feels a burdensome. It's, it's not going to be grievous. Why? Because giving will be the means through which I will have a better appreciation of the lover of my soul. Giving sacrificially does not feel miserable when you're motivated by the love of God. Why? Because in that process, what are you doing? You're placing yourself in that position to embrace more of your greatest joy. Christ himself would be manifested more in you. How important it is to give sacrificially like this woman did. How important it is to change our attitude when we see a brother who's in need, that you would not come and say, I see a wall of obstruction, a mountain that I have to climb. No, it's a downhill. It's, it's a wonderful journey. 
Let us be like the church of Macedonia. Let me finish with a couple of verses to show you how our brothers in Christ were their attitude when they were giving. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Macedonian church is a very poor church. And Paul says here that in a great ordeal of affliction, look at this, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of the liberality. And then it says this, so that they, were, they were under so much poverty, so much affliction, but they had so much joy to give. So much so that in verse 4 it says, they were begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Yes, we know that we have so much affliction. Yes, we understand we are so poor, but we are so rejoicing and we beg you, Paul. We urge you. Would you please take our possessions to help our brothers who are in need? That's mind-boggling. These are men and women that love God and they're giving and they're motivated by the love they have for God. What about the saints in Hebrews? Hebrews 10, verse 34. Oh God, we pray that God would bring back this attitude, would bring back the spirit of those saints of old. It says there, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners. So some Christians were persecuted and they were in prison. And it says there, and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Do you get that? I so want to be identified with Tristan. I so want to be identified with Brother John who's been persecuted that once I'm exposed, the government's going to come and they're going to seize my home. And I go, go, great, yes. Praise God. Why? They're taking my home. Great. They accepted joyfully the seizure of their property. Why? It says he, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and the lasting one. When we're raptured in a twinkling of an eye, that last trumpet, when our bodies are transformed and we're standing before the judgment seat of Christ to receive our rewards. I believe this poor widow who gave all that she had will be way, way ahead of so many godly and influential men that we know. Why? Let's finish with this. Because your faithfulness is not measured by your influence, your position, your gift, or even what you do for God. Let me tell you what your faithfulness will be measured against. It will be measured against what is left over for yourself after you did what you did for God. You get that? It will be measured by what's left over in your bank account, in your time, in your effort, that is left for yourself after you did what you did for God. 
God doesn't want you to save thousand people. He just wants you to be faithful with your time, your effort, your money to live to His glory. It's not about how much possession do you give to God. It's about how much of God's possession that you keep for yourself because we know that all things are owned by God. And you're just a servant of His. Well, how much should I give? I don't know. How much rewards do you want? How much love do you want to have for Christ? And that will dictate how much you want to give, right? Let's pray. Lord God, what, a, what an eye-opener, what a challenge and comfort it is. We pray, Lord, that as we sunk deep into this text and we have seen what you desire of us and we went back in time and we x-rayed the heart of this widow, would you, Lord, call Saving Grace Bible Church to imitate this widow as she most certainly imitated you, your son, Jesus? Lord, you are so good. You've changed us. you regenerated us. You led us into freedom from enslavery of sin. And it costed your son his precious life. How is it that we would not return that by being grateful, being thankful? How is it that we would not be thankful by giving all that we have. Lord, you never command us to do anything that is harmful to us. You only command us things that are beneficial to us. Lord, give us the wisdom that we would look at our lives from the eternal perspective. Transport us, Lord, to 10 million years from now. Transport us to 100 million years from now. Let our decisions, let every moment that we um, spend here on earth not to be wasted, Lord, but to live for Jesus, to magnify Him, to enjoy Him, and to make His name known. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.